0: Hello, and welcome again to another Conservative Historian podcast. This one entitled, The Reason for Being, The People's Party and the BLM Organization. The date is September 2020. But before we get to the podcast, I did just want to mention that beginning, and we now have a firm date, on October 15th, the conservative historian book yes the conservative historian book called collected works will be available for sale on amazon in future podcasts i'm going to actually provide the exact location of that but all you need to do is just to go on to amazon and type in conservative historian collected works and you will see two different versions one a kindle and the other a hardcover please keep a lookout for that Our launch date plan October 15th. And now, to the podcast. Even before revisionist history, in the form of the 1619 Project, or the leftists' fever dreams of various history professors, the fix was already in. During the years between the American Civil War and the year 1900, the United States passed Great Britain to become the world's largest economy, In industry, after industry, including railroads, steel, oil, and agricultural production, the nation became the world's unquestioned leader. During this period, life expectancy rose from a median of 39 years in 1875 to 47 by the end of the century. To put that into perspective, life expectancy in 1975 only increased by five years, in the intervening time before 2000. And this allows all of the environmental cleanup. This allows for all of the advances in medicine and healthcare that occurred during that period of time. In other words, those 25 years between 1875 and 1900 saw one of the greatest growth rates in life expectancy in the history of mankind. These were the years that set the tone for the most significant change in humanity, probably since the agricultural revolution that occurred in 14,000 BCE. Wages increased, leading to a large influx of immigrants seeking better opportunities than available in their countries of origin. America's industrial might led to automobiles, airplanes, medical devices, pharmaceuticals, antibiotics, and mechanized agriculture. We live in an unprecedented age in which the traditional killers of humanity, that would include famine, that would include wars, and that would include disease, are largely abrogated. And a lot of that, those roots of that success began in the late 1800s. Now I know a lot of you will be thinking, elimination of disease or pestilence, what about COVID? As of this reading, in September of 2020, there are, unfortunately, 6 million cases of COVID that have occurred since March in the United States. But let's put that into perspective. That is roughly 2%, 2% of the total population of the United States. And when you actually get to fatalities, it pales in comparisons with all of the diseases that had gone before in the history of mankind, whether it be the plague of Justinian, the Antonine Plague, or even the plagues that affected India in the late 19th century, before all of the advances that occurred from the industrialization of the world, all of the successes, all of the prosperity that we enjoy now, many of the roots for this prosperity were laid down in the late 19th century. But that is not the historical take on this era that is taught in classrooms, and not just in 2020, but for the past 40 years. Here are just some of the names provided to this era. Robber barons, the beginning of Jim Crow, and my personal favorite, the Gilded Age. This last name provided by Mark Twain was purposefully applied to indicate that this prosperity was merely decorative and that something wrong hid underneath the gilding. For historians of the 20th century, especially Matthew Josephson, Arthur Schlesinger Sr., and more recently Howard Zinn, the late 19th century had to be viewed in this context, a context of negativity. All the better to provide the progressive era as the antidote for the era's supposed ills that came before. Here's an example of Howard Zinn's comments on this era from his People's History of the United States. Quote, In the year 1877, the signals were given for the rest of the century. The blacks would be put back. The strikes of white workers would not be tolerated. The industrial and political elites of North and South would take hold of the country and organize the greatest march of economic growth in human history. They would do it with the aid of, oh, really, at the expense of black labor, white labor, Chinese labor, European immigrant labor, and female labor, rewarding them differently by race, sex, national origin, and social class in such a way as to create separate levels of oppression a skillful terracing to stabilize the pyramid of wealth, It just, it almost makes one nostalgic for the halcyon previous 4,000 years of history with all of that wonderful warfare, disease, famine, and slavery. Because let's not forget, every society had a form going back to the Sumerians of slavery. Mention of wage increases, uh, expanded life expectancies, McKinley's attempts to abrogate Southern voter suppression? Not in Zinn's take, but even he could not discount the era's gains. Quote, machines changed farming. Before the Civil War, it took 61 hours of labor to produce an acre of wheat. By 1900, it took three hours and 19 minutes and manufactured ice enabled the transport of food over long distances, and meatpacking was born, Part of the longer lifespans was directly related to agricultural improvements that could feed larger and larger populations, putting paid to those such as Thomas Malthus, who believe in doom and gloom if the world's population exceeded one billion. Given this context, It is not strange that one particular movement of the late 19th century, the Populist Party or People's Party, gets so much press despite its relatively short lifespan. The People's Party was founded in the early 1890s, but by 1896 had been largely subsumed into the Democrats under William Jennings Bryan. In contrast, the Greenback Party was around for 25 years and the Silver Party for 19 Yet the People's Party gets all of the attention. Here is Zinn. Quote, The alliances were not getting real power, but they were spreading new ideas and a new spirit. As a political party, they became the People's Party, or Populist Party, and met in convention in 1890 in Topeka, Kansas. The great populist orator from that state, Mary Ellen Lease, told an enthusiastic crowd, Wall Street owns the country. It is no longer a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, but a government of Wall Street, by Wall Street, and for Wall Street. Our laws are the output of a system which clothes rascals in robes and honesty in rags." So much of the people's history of the United States by Zinn is very detrimental to pretty much all of the core institutions of the nation. And yet when Zinn starts to talk about the People's Party, the adjectives start to flow. Mary Ellen Leese is not an orator. She's the great populist orator. And the convention in Topeka, Kansas, included not a crowd, but an enthusiastic crowd. This is the kind of uh, thought process and the way that people like Zinn Josephson and even Arthur Schlesinger Sr. viewed the populist or People's Party. And since writers such as Zinn himself traffic in class envy and pitting groups against each other, it is not hard to see why the People's Party receives such laudatory words from certain circles. But what happened to the populist movement itself and the People's Party? In 1896, As with so many third-party movements, the Populist Party was fused with the New Democratic Party. In other words, it was subsumed into one of the two major parties. Under Bryan, the New Democrats wholly rejected the pro-business, pro-sound money attitude of Grover Cleveland. And so I'm referring to it almost as the New Democratic Party because something after the Panic of 1893 was broken in the old Democratic Party and arose from the ashes of the Panic of 1893 and the election of 1894, was this new Democratic Party, much more Bryan and much less Cleveland. Though Zinn and his ilk make the populist party into a great movement, its values and goals soon became institutionalized, and some of its objectives, such as an income tax, were enacted. Though later liberal writers make this seem like a golden age of populist politics, the whole thing, the whole People's Party, was over and done in about eight years. This forced obsolescence has not been the case with the Civil Rights Movement. For most African Americans, the movement has been attached and identified with the Democratic Party, well, we would say unfortunately, but much of its infrastructure exists outside of the party system. One of the aspects of governmental growth that neither party discusses to a great extent is that with government growth, there will be inevitably a growth in the powers that wish to influence governmental thinking and direction. Government outlays today are nearly 44% of GDP, but that does not include the verticals and industries, ranging from education to energy, which government influences with its outlays and its regulations. Yet even within that context, civil rights organizations exist outside that paradigm, with many reliant upon the individual and increasingly corporate donations. Though some of these donations are sincere, many are similar to the Jews putting lamb's blood over their door during Passover, though instead of fearing the scourge of God, these corporate paragons of courage give the money so that these organizations will issue positive press releases and that the CEO will not park their car amidst an organized protest outside of the company doors. Just as small businesses in Brooklyn once added in mob protection money as the cost of doing business, so now do corporate titans make the same calculations regarding, quote, diversity. And finally, whereas the People's Party's paramount concern was class division, these organizations rely on race divisions to achieve their ends. So let's play a what-if game. Knowing that the African-American population in the United States is around 13%, assume a world in which 13% of all CEOs were black, 13% of assets were in African-American hands, and 13% of all income was identified as black. What would happen to these organizations, including the most prominent of them today, the Black Lives Matter organization? Now, of course, that is not the case. Black wealth in the form of assets is far below the percentage of the population. The goal of economic equality raises two questions. Why is African-Americans so wealth poor? And do civil rights organizations such as BLM help with this issue And to be further clear we are discussing the organization not the sentiment that black lives like all lives do matter of course they do the distinction between the organization and its goals and the concept of racial equality are mostly lost on white woke liberals so again there are two questions Why is it that 13% of the population would have less than 3% of the assets? That's the first piece of it. The second piece of it, do the civil rights organizations, as are constituted today, fundamentally and efficiently help with this issue? Let's start with the term activist. An activist does not really produce anything. Well, except for wages for themselves, in contributions, donations, and grants. So let's look at the definition of an activist. Quote, a person who campaigns to bring about political or social change. Unquote. Here is another one. Quote, activism consists of efforts to promote, impede, direct, or intervene in social, political, economic, or environmental reform with the desire to make changes in society toward a perceived greater good, unquote. Think about that, a perceived greater good. But there's two salient aspects about activism. Number one, activists have to be funded. And number two, what happens if that reform, as mentioned in the definition, is actually or even partially achieved? Does that activist simply, like the People's Party, decide to join another organization, hang up the hat, maybe go into a different profession, become a restaurateur or an astronaut? That is not what's been happening. And just to illustrate that, here is a list of current civil rights organizations who are all active in the issues of racial inequality. I'm gonna give you the names and the years upon which they are founded. And starting off with probably the oldest one of them all, founded by W.E.B. Du Bois in 1909, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored Peoples. There's also the American Civil Liberties Union, founded in 1920, the Nation of Islam, founded in 1930, United Negro College Fund, 1944, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, this was M.O.K.'s organization, 1957. Live Free USA, 1966. The National Coalition on Black Civic Participation, 76. National Action Network, 1991. Rainbow Push, Jesse Jackson's organization, 1996. Advancement Project, 1999. Color of Change, 2005. The Bail Project, 2007. Black Youth Project, 2013. Cut 50, 2014. Black Lives Matter, 2015. Fair Fight, Stacey Abrams Group, 2018. Know Your Rights Camp, 2018. This final one is this Colin Kaepernick's organization. What this list does not cover is diversity administrators now employed by thousands of colleges across the nation. A rough estimate, let's say there's 4,000 accredited colleges and universities. Each is employing five individuals with such a role. We're doing that on average because some might employ less, but Yale employs over 50, pulling that mean higher and higher. This means another 20,000 people wake up each morning thinking of ways to talk about racial inequality in our nation. And these people want to. Well, they need to get paid. In the case of Al Sharpton, who flies in a private jet, that means lots and lots and lots of pay. And this does not include governmental entities such as the EEOC that exist as a part of of a charitable complex that also includes these civil rights organizations, but also law firms, the academy, corporations, journalists, and think tanks all of these organizations focused in on a specific issue now let's pivot just for a moment to the savvy woke corporation that also deploys its own diversity team does this diversity team help obtain more customers build better products reduce costs or improve service well directly none of the above but supposedly these organizations help hire better employees and strengthen corporate culture And there are several studies issued that maintain that diversity programs work. And frankly, a good argument can be made that diversity does, in fact, improve productivity and performance. But the documents supporting this are produced either by organizations with a vested interest in the funding of these programs or companies themselves undertaking these programs and wishing to signal to the world that they are on board with the program. For example... A highly favorable report was issued by the Journal of Diversity Management. That is akin to the American Bar Association extolling the need for legal advice. But diversity programs, as constituted today, are not really voluntary. But it's sort of like, begin a program or else. Again, when the mobster shows up, better give him his cut than to consider the alternative. Part of the issue is that these diversity quotas are mandated, as opposed to happening organically. In a little-cited Cato report on European diversity initiatives, Ryan Bourne of the Cato Institute notes, quote, but where the grander promises of empowerment are of concern, compulsion looks unlikely to deliver the broader benefits, unquote. We can now add to this list the diversity hucksters, such as Robin DiAngelo, who, for a cool $15,000 visit, will cleanse your company faster then a CEO can say white fragility. So again, let's step back in that list. All those civil rights organizations we just talked about, all those governmental entities, all those academic diversity programs. We now have diversity officers within corporations in and of themselves. And we even have a whole series of legal entities, probably the most prominent today being Benjamin Crump, who are all pursuing the same issue and are all pursuing those dollars necessary to pay for all of these people and to fund the activism to extol the need for reform of these issues. The United States does not exist in a vacuum. Every day, American corporations must compete globally, but American companies, colleges, and the government itself uniquely have to engage in this diversity kapuki dance. Will this lead to economic equality? Let's get back to that question. And after all, that is really the question. As noted many times, the conservative historian does not believe in economic equality of outcomes because the only fundamental way to achieve that is through what we were talking about before, coercion, in this case, governmental coercion. Yet we do believe, down to our marrow, in the power of economic equality of opportunity. But again, do those civil rights organizations fundamentally help achieving economic equality of opportunity? Can African Americans achieve economic equality of opportunity when over 70% of its children are born into single-parent households or account for over 45% of all victims of violent death, when again representing just 13% of the population? When Cardi B is more a role model than Candace Owens? We believe the answer is no. For all of its class envy and proto-Marxist beliefs, the People's Party faded not just because of integration in the Democratic Party. At its height, it garnered 1 million voters, but the nation at the time was over 70 million. It failed because its ideas did not fundamentally match the reality of what was happening in the United States. They talked of all of the inequalities that were going on while the nation was experiencing, and the world subsequently, unprecedented prosperity. That is why the United States did not experience the kind of revolutions that in 1911 the Chinese government was overthrown, no more emperors. And then later, in 1917, the czarist Russians were also overthrown by the Bolsheviks. No revolution in the United States, not even close. One million out of 70 million does not constitute a significant movement or issues, no matter what Zinn or Schlesinger or all of these other historians would like us to believe. When the civil rights movement began in the 1960s, there were no black billionaires, no black CEOs, no prominent black scientists. Blacks did not serve as intimate advisors to presidents. They did not serve in cabinet posts, such as Secretary of State and Attorney General. And we also would remind uh, the listener as much as possible, the first black Secretary of State was appointed by a Republican. The first black female Secretary of State also appointed by that same Republican. And they were not considered, much less elected to the highest office in the land. Can you imagine what would happen if, well, even MLK, but what if Stokely Carmichael or H. Rap Brown had ran for president in the 1960s? Yet today, the American people have elected, not once, but twice, an African-American president. And... As I record this in 2020, there is, on one of the major party tickets, a woman of color. And yet, at least to the conservative mindset, this is the least interesting aspect of Kamala Harris. What is far more interesting to the conservative is her belief system. Uh, There's been a lot of flip-flops and changes over the years, and whether she would, in fact, be charge of the administration. Even the other day, she referred to a Harris administration, and Joe Biden, the presumptive top of the ticket, talked about a Harris-Biden administration. That is, is what is interesting. Today, there are two Americas for blacks. One is the level for Oprah Winfrey, Brock and Michelle Obama, Neil deGrasse Tyson, LeBron James. But then there is the one, the other, dominated by broken families and high crime rates. All too many of the organizations that we have named focus on the police shooting of unarmed black men, which number somewhere between 20 and 30 annually. And many of these, such as Michael Brown, is based on a myth. But when there are over 6,000 black Americans murdered every year, the vast majority by other blacks, this pales the police homicides almost into insignificance. So why do so many civil rights organizations worry about police reform? Because they, unlike the People's Party, want to stay relevant. And to do that, they will follow the money. Their reason for being is not really to help African Americans, but rather to perpetuate their existence. Thank you. I really hope that you have enjoyed this podcast And please proceed to our uh, website, www.conservativehistorian.com, for all of our podcasts, our videos, our columns, our essays, and even our book reviews. And as of October, go on to Amazon. The last two weeks in October, go on to Amazon and look for the Conservative Historian Collected Works. We really appreciate your listening. Thank you.